I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Pia Chattopada. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, December the 3rd on CBC Radio. Fighting between Israel and Hamas has resumed and the situation inside Gaza is dire. First up, we'll hear about the humanitarian crisis facing Palestinians there, and then a look at how Israel is calculating its next steps to free hostages and destroy Hamas. After that, two Canadian provinces still have statutes of limitations for childhood physical abuse. Our Sunday documentary will bring you one man's personal fight to change the law. Later on, it is time once again to test my brain and yours with an all-new round of our monthly challenge, That's Puzzling. After that, Maria Ressa won a Nobel Peace Prize for defending freedom of expression in the Philippines. Now, she's speaking out about disinformation's threat to democracies everywhere, including here in Canada. That's all starting right now on the Sunday Magazine podcast. After a week's respite from airstrikes and shootings during the truce, civilians in Gaza are once again trying to stay alive amidst the war. Israel's military's focus is now the southern part of Gaza, where it had told hundreds of thousands to flee too, and now it's warning them to leave. The renewed fighting between Israel and Hamas is compounding the crisis of getting much-needed food, water and medical supplies to the people of Gaza. And humanitarian groups say things are poised to get worse. Joseph Beliveau is the executive director of Doctors Without Borders Canada. Joseph, good morning. Good morning, Pia. We are almost two months into this war and except for seven days, um, the people of Gaza have had food shortages, water shortages, medical supplies not getting in. So as of today, December the 3rd, tell me, or at least not getting into the amounts they need, uh, tell me what you're hearing from your colleagues on the ground there. Yeah, you use the word dire. Um, it's it's really hard to imagine this uh, descending into something worse than it already had been. Um, we, the, you know, the resumption of hostilities was really our worst fear Um because we uh, we're facing a situation now where the health system uh, is is just barely functional. There are eight uh, functioning health centers uh, out of uh, 36 that were previously functioning prior to October 7th. Um, so you know three quarters of the population has has been forced uh, from their homes, um, crowded into the southern parts here. 
uh, of the country with the with you know, systematically hospitals having been uh, uh, targeted in in the north um through the combination of the blockade uh, so just not having uh, supplies including fuel and then ac active targeting of those facilities so now we're we're facing a situation where there are just very very few medical facilities that are functioning at all and they're completely overwhelmed and then just in the in these last few days um the uh, israeli authorities have uh, have ordered evacuations further in the south so imagine these huge numbers of people uh, barely functioning health system some of the areas that they've ordered to evacuate include uh, MSF or Doctors Without Borders health uh, centers, um, so there'll be even less uh, medical care. And where shall where shall people go? Um, you know, and this kind of uh, ordering of evacuations like this, which has been a pattern as we know now for for weeks, um, without provision, without a, a safe place to go, and with provisions for people, is contrary as a crime uh, under international humanitarian law. Okay, let me ask you about that week-long truce, because part of what happened during those seven days was that aid did come in. I know not to the amounts that groups like yours say it should, but did that offer medical supplies? I know there's not very many hospitals or health centers left running, but were they able to restock, if I can put it that way? Yeah, so I, a couple of things uh, were were very good. We were, of course, very hopeful that that uh, that pause would would continue and would turn into a, a permanent ceasefire, which ourselves and many others have been calling for. Uh, in that period of time, we were able to evacuate uh, uh, staff. Uh, these were staff who were just sheltering and, and trying to survive in the north. We were finally able to get them and their families out and, and to the south. And then, as you indicate, uh, the number of trucks with uh, with relief items, food, water. And medical supplies uh, per day that were able to get across the border had increased uh, significantly, still less to what what was uh, daily coming across the border prior to October seventh. But that was a, a hugely welcome uh, uh, development. Um, it, we it, the amount of medical supplies that we would need uh, to to even even support the medical facilities that are still open uh, is is far more than what we're getting. So. Our, our people are even during that period of time. So um, my colleagues are, are describing situations in the hospitals and medical uh, facilities where, uh, first off, there are way more patients coming in daily or there were up until uh, these last few days. Um, less mass casualty events. That's great. We weren't seeing the mass casualty events, um, but because people were able to move around a bit during that little respite, um, they were coming to uh, to the medical facilities, and we were seeing just enormous numbers of uh, wounded. So people uh, had experienced the direct violence, uh, so burn injuries, uh, fractures, uh, internal uh, injuries, lacerations, and so on, uh, as well as starting to see a really significant increasing numbers of the secondary health uh, uh, impacts of this. Mm. So because people sleeping on the on the streets, not having clean uh, water, diarrheal diseases, uh, respiratory tract infections, uh, dehydration, uh, and a lot of mental health uh, trauma, as you can imagine as well. And of course, the, the medical staff, the nurses, the doctors, the, the myriad other kinds of people that work in healthcare facilities, they too have been living through this war for nearly two months now. Some have been killed, some have been injured, many are just trying to, to push through. That must be taking quite a toll on them as well to provide whatever services they can. Absolutely. Um, we we lost on the, the, the 21st uh, uh, hospital Al Auda was hit uh, the third and fourth floors where 
uh, two of our doctors and a, and a ministry doctor were working. They were killed. Uh, Dr. Mahmoud in, in that incident uh, was, uh, was a surgeon who uh, had taken under his care um, a number of three children, in fact, uh, because these are this, this wounded child, no surviving family. You've heard that acronym, no doubt, uh, WCNSF. Uh, and, and, you know, so where, yeah, indeed, it's been incredibly hard on, on our staff. We've lost staff members. Um, we've also had uh, a convoy. Um, you may have seen that just now recently. We, we've gone public with uh, a convoy of ours that was attacked. Uh, this was during an evacuation. We were trying to get people uh, on the 18th of November from the north down to the south. Couldn't get uh, through the checkpoints, had to turn back. The convoy was fired upon. Uh, lost two family members of MSF or Doctors Without Borders staff in that event. So, indeed, the the mental stress, the exhaustion, the exposure to the violence uh, has been relentless. And uh, our our, you know, our staff are still amazingly just doing all that they can to provide medical care under these overwhelming circumstances. But it's it's very heavy. Your call, as it is with many others around the world, is for a permanent ceasefire. At this point, uh, Israel says that will not happen, that it will continue I its war with Hamas in Gaza. So short of an uh, end to hostilities, what would you like to see? Well, just to go, go back to the reason for it, because it, calling for a ceasefire is not something that we normally do. We, we accept war as, as, a, as something that occurs, and then we go into spaces of war to provide a measure of humanity and provide uh, medical care. And then we call on the parties to conflict to respect uh, international humanitarian law. Uh, and, and in particular, you know, the, the the fundamental distinction of combatants versus non-combatants, and then take measures to to protect non-combatants and explicitly to protect medical spaces. And because those aspects of IHL humanitarian law have been so egregiously violated and so repetitively violated, and all indications are that the resumption of hostilities will will look like that again. Um, that we that that the, that a ceasefire is the, is the only real way forward because doctors cannot stop bombs, humanitarian aid cannot fix this this crisis. There's a huge, massive need for humanitarian aid, but we don't have the space to deliver it to to anywhere near the level that is necessary until uh, the bombing stops. It needs a political solution. Joseph Bellavo, thank you for your time. We'll leave it there for this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Pia. Joseph Bellevo is the executive director of Doctors Without Borders Canada. So much of where this war goes from here depends on what steps Israel takes. Its Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has said he will not end the war until Israel gets all of the hostages back and reaches its goal of destroying Hamas. But what does that really mean? Joshua Krasna is a former Israeli diplomat who was posted in Ottawa from 2011 to 2014. He is now the director of the Center for Emerging Energy Politics in the Middle East at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Hello to you. Joshua, are you there? Good morning. Hello. Hi. Benjamin Netanyahu has been consistent in his messaging since the start of this war on October 7th, that he's committed both to returning all hostages, which stands now at about 140 people, and eliminating Hamas. How does he square the goals of getting hostages out safely with this renewed fighting since the truce? So, uh, first of all, this wasn't quite, uh, these weren't quite the goals from the very beginning. Um, it, it, transformed over time as uh, public pressure began to build more and more 
to uh, give precedence to uh, uh, freeing the hostages. Um, and that has recently been uh, been given sort of uh, um, the position of a of a uh, uh, of a major goal next to that of destroying Hamas. Mm. But in the beginning, it was it was said it was a it was a secondary goal, not not a primary goal. And so when he so. says destroying Hamas, there are a lot of analysts like yourself trying to figure out what he means by that. As you best understand it, what does destroying Hamas look like in reality? Yeah, so that's that's a, a, a real problem that I think many of us have been um, have been grappling with since the very beginning, because um, certainly there is a broad public support for destroying Hamas. In fact, uh, to a large extent, I think the Israeli public and and the, here there's really not many uh, not not many sort of variations um, in their perception. Uh, we'll see the uh, if if Hamas is not destroyed, uh, we'll see that as the war not having achieved um, its goals. And and the question, as you ask, is what does that mean? What does destroying Hamas mean? Uh, uh, Hamas is a is a um, an ideological trend. It is a military organization. And at the moment, it is the government of Gaza. And I think uh, at least two things sort of would be our minimum goals. The first would be that after the war, Hamas would no longer be governing Gaza. And I think the second would be that uh, that the military capabilities of Hamas would uh, would um, be um, damaged or or, or uh, diminished or attrited enough that they could not pose the same threat that they did um, on on. Um, October 7th. And I think that um, those two goals, the goal of um, destroying as much as possible of Hamas's military power, uh, and second, um, leading to a post-war political order in which Hamas will not be governing, I think that those are extremely um, uh, difficult to achieve, but might be achieved while destroying Hamas. I, I don't know how to quantify it because I don't know how to quantify it. I don't know how to say if you've done it or not. Hmm. In other words, you're saying, you know, one kind of option could be if you destroy the leadership or, or some of the leaders, Netanyahu could say that is victory. Or it could be, you know, there's 30,000 to 40,000 Hamas fighters inside Gaza. There could be different, I don't know, goalposts for Netanyahu, depending on how he wants to sell this as a victory. Well, uh, so I, I I deal less with Netanyahu. I think he's yesterday's man. I mean, he's he's still the prime minister. But I think, as I as I said, I think that the uh, the Israeli public, I think the military and the uh, uh, defense establishment um, is not interested in in this being another um, another of a series of rounds of conflicts. This mm. needs to be um, not the final, perhaps, but the cataclysmic conflict that we have with Hamas, after which it will pose much less of a threat than it did in the past. And yes, I think that will include um, um, destroying a large part of its leadership. I think it will include destroying a large part of its military capability, of its military organization, of its weapons. Um, and as I say, one of the things that has made Hamas so deadly in recent years, the combination between its military capabilities, its extremely um, 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 a barbaric ideology and the fact that it was the de facto governance structure of Gaza. And I think that if there's a, a struck, if afterwards Hamas has both uh, uh, absorbed a significant blow, which uh, significantly reduces its military capability and is no longer governing Gaza, I think that that would be a very significant change, uh, which uh, could perhaps um, um, make uh, um, make uh, Israel, uh, Israel feel 
um, safer again. You mentioned that there is a lot of public support in Israel for this war, despite Netanyahu's own polling numbers being in the dumps. We have seen a lot of images and of the vigils that are being held to free um, the hostages being held by Hamas. But give me a sense of what public opinion for the war itself is inside Israel. So it's, you know, it's hard to measure, um, um, though there have been polls and the polls have shown very strong support um, for um, uh, for the military exercise. In fact, a fair level of support of expanding uh, uh, or or intensifying uh, the military exercise. One one thing we have to understand is that um, um, this this has been uh, the, the October seventh was probably the the you know it's it's a cliche but it's still true. It was the worst day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. Probably the worst single day in Israel's history. I wouldn't say probably. It was the worst single day in Israel's history. Right, and and um, people feel. Um, and we just heard a description, and it's really a heart-rending description, but f- people uh, in Israel, the vast majority, right? The, the, there's maybe an infinitesimal minority that does not say it this way. The vast majority sees this is a word that was forced upon us, right? And it's a word that was forced upon us that, that, um, that um, we, have to win, we have to win against the enemy. The enemy is not the Palestinians. The enemy is not the inhabitants of Gaza. The enemy is the um the the uh um, well-armed terrorist organization that took gaza by force by 2007 has been ruling it since then and until that um that threat is removed i think that israelis will no longer uh uh, um, uh feel safe and there's an element here both of the need to uh feel safe again and the need mm-hmm. to um um punish those responsible yeah. right it's not a question of revenge it's a question of that the, uh, that um, in order to restore deterrence um, the people who uh, carried out the first violent act have to know that their act um, did not succeed and the way to do that is to let them that is the people who carried out the attack right um, understand that they were figuring wrong they were figuring wrong that they figured that Israeli society wasn't united and their act actually united Israeli society a lot, uh, a lot more. And uh, um, they were uh, wrong in thinking that uh, they could bring Israel to its knees. Just a point of clarification that Hamas was democratically elected before keeping itself in in force for all those years. Um, just to make that point. Well, Hamas was not actually democratically elected. Um, Hamas won the elections for the parliament. The president was elected from Fatah. And Hamas in 2007 seized power from Fatah and seized power in Gaza. Okay. Um, I want to talk about the pressures that Israel is facing from the outside. And I said, most notably, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who was uh, in Israel a couple of days ago, met with Prime Minister Netanyahu. The U.S., of course, um, supports Israel's right to defend itself. It, it always says that and has said that. But Blinken was pretty terse when he said that it's Israel's responsibility to protect Palestinian civilians in Gaza throughout this war. How much does the U.S. spends billions in aid to Israel ha- every year have at this point? How, how much what this influence? Does, uh, how, how much influence, influence does the U.S. have? So the United States has tremendous influence, and in fact, the, uh, the United States has been. Um, uh, it, it is said uh, among many people in Israel that if Joe Biden ran against Netanyahu in the elections, um, you know, there's no question who would win. Uh, hmm. uh, the United States has stood by Israel in 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 a way that that has really um, led all Israelis of all all uh, walks of life to 
just appreciate the president and appreciate the help that the United States gives us. And we understand the United States doesn't necessarily see the issues exactly as we are. In the end, no one uh, uh, no one can see the issue exactly the same as we are because no one has suffered what we have suffered uh, in the past few days. So I think Israel is very, very conscious of what the United States uh, is asking us. I think that there will be, um, that there has been and will be uh, a real effort to um, to um, live up to uh, uh, um, uh, the Americans' expectations. Um, and I think the United States has a great deal of influence. Uh, I think that being said, um, in the end, uh, um, Israel has to uh, has a very complicated uh, job here of navigating between what its friends and its true friends, right? Its true friends in the United States, its true friends in the Arab world um, uh, require from it. And what it sees is the minimum that it still needs to do in order to feel that it has accomplished um, 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 at least minimal goals in this Hmm. operation. You have described what's happening this moment as a, quote, diplomatic hourglass. What do you mean by that? So I think every war that Israel has ever fought, unfortunately, or not unfortunately, it's a historical fact, um, it's fought against the clock because um, this was true in the Cold War and it was true even since the Cold War, which is that whenever Israel has gone out to carry out a military uh, operation, the major players in the international community, it was the United States and the Soviet Union. Now it's mostly the United States. But on the other hand, Israel now needs to take into account more its regional allies, its regional friends, those countries who had relationships with it. And they, from the beginning of the operation, uh, as in the past, there begins to be pressure on Israel to um, um, finish it up quickly and and reach a situation where the war is not extended. And this has been in almost every war um, uh, that Israel's had. And Israel had almost every war that's had has been um, has been um, uh, has com- uh, ended the war perhaps before it would have preferred to strategically, right? And this uh, uh, the hourglass is the Americans and 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 our Arab friends and other allies in the world are concerned. They're concerned about what they see on their TV screens and they're concerned about what's going on in their publics. And they're concerned that this is uh, that if this uh, goes on too long, it could lead to other uh, more wider uh, regional and international repercussions. And Israel understands that. But Israel has, apart from its diplomatic considerations, it also has national security uh, uh, um, uh, considerations and always needs to sort of be maneuvering between the fact that it knows that its friends would like it to finish up more quickly, but it needs to make sure that it has attained goals um, that are um, that uh, it feels are um, are at least minimally uh, the goals it needs to. And in this particular case, we have uh, an even more difficult case because the the aggressive action which began this war was so horrific and struck. Israel so uh, so much that there's a domestic political concern as well. Given right? Israelis, given yeah, those, sorry. yeah, given those those timing pressures as you sort of refer to them, and given that the goal by Netanyahu is to destroy Hamas, what is your assessment of how long this war goes on for? It is very hard for me to say. I don't think the war will be. I I I would rather not give you an assessment because it wouldn't really be based. I don't think the war is going to be another six months. I think I think uh, um, the uh, the Israeli uh, presence in Gaza territory will end in uh, in another few weeks or or perhaps a few months, and then Israel will be um, on the borders of Gaza um, differently, but largely in the same way as it was before. And is that your assessment? I just have about a minute left. But is that your assessment of what 
kind of the future of Gaza might look like after the war, that Israel will go back to... An easy question to finish in one minute. Um, (laughs) um, I think that that in the end, um, um, there needs to be uh, um, a governing structure that will replace the current governing structure so that Hamas is not governing. I personally think that um, um, we don't really, you know, the Palestinian Authority might not be our best uh, uh, interlocutor, but it's really the only one we have. I don't think that we, in in the near to medium run, we can, uh, we certainly not Israel, but even all the international community can build an, a real alternative. So I think that in the end, the Palestinian Authority uh, um, um, should be going in there with a lot of help and support and and uh, um, uh, um, capacity building by the international community and by um, uh, moderate um, regional states uh, mm. who want to help solve the problem. And uh, and I hope that that will be the political order that will uh, that will be afterwards. You know, whether we can go immediately to a political uh, uh, process in which uh, there'll be a two state solution, mm. I'm I'm not that uh, uh, optimistic right now. Okay, Joshua, we'll leave it there. Appreciate your time as well. Thank you. Thank you. Joshua Krasna is the director of the Center for Emerging Energy Politics in the Middle East at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Jack Whalen still has nightmares about his teenage years in Newfoundland and about the abuse he experienced there back in the 1970s. But he has no legal recourse for it, all thanks to a relatively a relative anomaly in Canadian provincial law. Jack is now 63 years old and living in Oshawa, Ontario. And for the past six months, he's been going back to St. John's, gathering signatures on a petition in an effort to change a law preventing him from getting the justice he seeks. Ryan Cook is a reporter for CBC News in St. John's who's been following Jack's journey. Here he is with our Sunday documentary, Jack in the Box. This is pretty much an exact replica of the cell that I was in for approximately two years. There's a box on the back of Jack Whalen's pickup truck. It's made of plywood, painted gray, with a door and a barred window on the back. Otherwise, it's exactly the same. There's a crowd gathering at the end of Middle Battery Road, a historic St. John Street overlooking the bustling port. Some people are helping, others are curious about what's happening here. Jack, nice to meet you, sir. Oh, you're much younger than I expected. Thank you. When I first meet Jack, he's just finished building this box, a kind of makeshift prison cell. Can we step inside if you don't mind? Sure. As my eyes adjust to the darkness inside the cell, hundreds of hash marks come into focus. They're all over the walls, 730 in total. One for approximately each day Jack spent in a box, very similar to this one in solitary confinement. Uh, The two years that I spent in here, I wasn't allowed to have any books, no TV, no exercise, no fresh air, no sunlight, absolutely nothing. The only time I got Outside the cell, Jack's wife, Glennis, and some other family members are writing messages on the walls. Jack has built this cell to help others understand, so they can see for themselves what he was subjected to decades ago. Can you just read what's on the side of this for me? It says, every night, this is where I go. I was not allowed... Attend, to attend school. I went in at age 13 in grade 6. I came out four years later. I was still in grade 6. This felt like torture. 
alone and afraid. The time Jack spent in solitary was not in a prison. It was in the Whitburn Boys' Home when Jack was just a teenager. The Whitburn Boys' Home opened in the 1940s. It was called a House of Correction for Wayward Youth. It sits an hour's drive from St. John's, in an inland area thick with forests and ponds. It existed quietly for the better part of 50 years. But in 1989, Newfoundland and Labrador went through an awakening. It began when complaints emerged about physical and sexual abuse of young men at another institution, the Mount Cashel Orphanage in St. John's. In the wake of that scandal, the long-held secrets of other institutions, like the Whitburn Boys' Home, began to leak. The old Whitburn Boys' Home was controversial before... I think there is enough evidence and enough people that have come forward that it would seem to me that it may be the tip of an iceberg. Mistreatment of boys and allegations of filthy living conditions have been in the news. Recently, a priest was sentenced to six years for sexually abusing boys at the home. Tom Hickey was the Minister of Social Services, overseeing Whitburn for a time in the 1970s. The alleged abuse happened under his watch. This is him speaking in 1998. How could I be Minister of, of a department responsible for disinstitution for a total of nine and a half years and three different periods of time and hear the like of this and find that there's upwards to close to 20 people coming forward now making complaints? Whitburn Boys' Home was closed in 1992 and was later demolished. Years later, in 2022, the province settled a class action lawsuit with more than 100 former residents of the Whitburn Boys' Home for $12.5 million. The province acknowledged kids were sexually abused by staff, volunteers, and the local priest. But Jack Whalen, who spent years in solitary confinement at Whitburn, wasn't part of that lawsuit. You see, Jack maintains he was never sexually assaulted while in custody. But he does want justice for the other abuse he suffered. But the thing is, he's run out of time. After abuse scandals began to break in 1989, the Newfoundland and Labrador government eliminated the statute of limitations on cases of childhood sexual abuse. That allowed these young men to file civil suits against the church and the government. Every province in Canada followed suit, and all but two took it a step further, eliminating the statute of limitations for all child abuse. Only Newfoundland and Labrador and New Brunswick restricted their amendments to sexual abuse only. So for Jack Whalen, who claims he was beaten by the guards and subjected to psychological abuse in solitary confinement, the statute of limitations has long since expired. He had two years after his 18th birthday to come forward. There are some exceptions, but those expire after 30 years. Whalen says he wasn't in a position to confront his past until after those 30 years were over. This is the exact same size except it was six inches that way and three inches this way bigger. This box is Jack Whalen's way of protesting. The Limitations Act should be eliminated. It's uh, cruel and unusual in my mind, right? And now there's a new urgency to his protests. As I say, I was in Toronto and I just got some bad news about my health, so I decided that, you know what, I'm going to come down here and let people know, make them aware of what happened back then, right? Yeah. 
Do you mind sharing what the what the health news is? Or? I have some problems with, uh, I've only got 36% with my kidneys. Uh, a lot of organs in my body, I don't know what. The organs are not working right. Jack doesn't know why his organs aren't working like they should. He's still waiting for more tests. So in the meantime, on this rainy June morning, Jack parks his solitary cell in front of the Confederation building steps in St. John's and keeps campaigning. He passes around a petition to passers-by and speaks with local reporters. In the cell, you can sit on your bed with your feet on the floor. If you sat on the bed with your feet on the bed or laid down, then they took your mattress, they took your bedclothes, they took your pillow and left you with nothing, right? So you had to sit up straight. If not, they would take your mattress away. That's right. You told me a story about an ant. Can you tell me tell me how that <laughs> ant kind of kept you going? Uh, well, when you're in a cell like this with nothing, absolutely nothing, every now and then you see an ant or something come in and what do you, you, you play with it. So I would always put my hand in front of it and it would go over my hand, it would go around my hand, it would uh, go up your arm or go anywhere, but he'd never give up. No matter where you put your hand to stop him, he never gave up. I wanted to be like that ant, right? So I never give up. Boredom must have been excruciating. It was painstakingly excruciating, right? What do you do? Jack protests outside the House of Newfoundland and Labrador's government every day for a week. Then he leaves the cell behind and flies back to Ontario for more doctor's appointments. Hello, my name is Brittany Whalen. I am uh, the daughter of Jack Whalen, Glennis and Jack Whalen. Brittany Whalen has a quiet intensity. Her parents describe her as headstrong, but overly empathetic. A combination she believes comes from her dad. I think he wanted us to have what he didn't have growing up. I had some friends that would have a hard time at home or didn't have the things that they needed. So my dad had adopted some of my friends that were in need and, and just, you know, we always had an open door policy. Anybody, everyone knew this, uh, they could come to him if they, if they needed help or a place to stay. But Jack was also a strict parent. His kids always had a curfew and he would get panicked when they stayed out late. The older she got, the more Brittany says she noticed these fears. I'd always known my dad was was different from other dads. Um, I could sense his pain, that he had uh, things that he was struggling with, a lot more uh, withdrawn than um, other parents I observed. And he had difficulties with social interaction, um, and he didn't help me with my homework. When she was 16, Brittany asked a question that changed her life. And I remember... Uh, as a teenager asking my, my mom why dad, why dad wouldn't help me with, with my homework, um, edit my, my papers, and um, why I could only go to my mom with, for, for that. And my mom explained to me at that time that my dad was um, taken from his home, put into a juvenile detention center where he was abused and uh, not permitted to attend classes and that he only had grade six education so he was actually not able to help me with the the homework and he didn't have the ability to help me with that work i was i was i was horrified i was shocked it was really hard to believe that our government and the people entrusted with my dad's care and upbringing could betray him like that 
and that at that point and even to this day no reparations were ever made that um nothing was done about it it just seemed so unfair from that conversation came a promise she vowed to become a lawyer and to do whatever she could to get justice for her dad that's when i knew i remember when i first got my my very first computer uh, and access to the internet the first thing i did was um research ways in which I could uh, bring this case forward. I'm still chipping away at it. Brittany graduated from the University of Ottawa's law school in 2015, and she's been on her dad's case ever since. In the 1970s, the Whitburn Boys' home had a security problem. It was estimated that staff dealt with more than 100 escapes annually. Jack says the boys felt like prisoners of war, like they had a duty to escape. Once I started running away, I had a man with me specifically 24 hours a day. They didn't have bars on the windows, but they had stops with screws in them and stuff. So you'd spend a bit of time looking out the window and you'd be playing with it. And finally, when you get ready to go, you'd try and create a, a disturbance somehow in one end of the room or have one of the kids do something so you could actually just jump out the window. right? Or if they'd be taking me to the washroom and then say, was somebody coming in the door, then I had to go out that door, right? <laughs> no matter what, I always managed to get out, right? But even with the man w- with me and no shoes on my feet, because I wasn't allowed to wear shoes, I would escape and then uh, 60 miles in St. John's with no shoes on. It was a long walk, right? Yeah. To the woods, right? The first time he escaped, Jack says he made it back to his mother's house. She convinced him to turn himself in, thinking it would only be another few months until he was allowed to come home for good. Once he developed a reputation for running, though, Waylon says his time at Whitburn was extended until his 17th birthday. He'd spend the rest of his childhood in custody. I decided that I'm going to run away every chance I get. So I ran away 24 times. Uh, I just wouldn't stop. I, 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 four years because I got in a fight. And petty theft is just ridiculous, right? Because that's why Jack was there, for getting into a fist fight at a stadium and shoplifting, leading to a sentence in youth court. But with his infractions at Whitburn, it led to a total of four years in custody, away from his family, friends, and regular schooling. Sometimes when he ran away, he'd make it to St. John's. Sometimes he'd get caught hitchhiking on the highway. He once made it all the way to Ontario, but soon came home because he missed his family. Back in the province, he was picked up by the RCMP and returned to Whitburn. Jack was released in 1977. He went to Ontario again, and this time he never looked back. Seven years later, the Whitburn boys' home made national news when a 17-year-old boy escaped custody and froze to death on the railway tracks. This escapee named Alonzo Cochran was found dead on nearby railway tracks and the administrators were found negligent. During the ensuing investigation, a civil servant remarked on how boys escaped daily, but information seldom made it beyond the gates. She wrote, The Whitburn School for Boys exists as a community unto itself, and even God himself could not break down the walls of this institution.
Brittany Whalen has struggled for years to get information on her dad's time in Whitburn. She says every document, every piece of disclosure has been a fight. Brittany is suing the province on her father's behalf, arguing they knew or ought to have known about the conditions he was kept in. For the case to proceed, she'll argue that the statute of limitations should be thrown out, that it violates the United Nations Convention Against Torture and breaches the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So the argument that I will be making is that the Limitations Act, by placing a time limit on a survivor's ability to come forward, breaches their rights to security of the person because it prevents them from obtaining the justice and closure that they need to heal and being able to access compensation, which could be used for, for future care and uh, therapy and, 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 and those purposes. It's Brittany versus Goliath. She admits feeling outgunned by the province's lawyers, who are arguing that all of this is moot. The limitations period has passed. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms didn't even exist when Jack Whalen was in custody. But thanks to the values her father's imparted, she believes there's a chance. Um, he's, he's instilled in me a real sense of, of right from wrong, um, given me, told me to believe in myself, told me that I could achieve anything I put my mind to. So I guess, I guess I got a little bit of that stubbornness from him as well. Because I'm here today and uh, I'm not giving up. I'm going to keep fighting. Uh, they've done a bunch more tests on me. And Jack is also still fighting. In August, he's back in St. John's to meet with politicians and continue his protest while he still can. He still doesn't have a diagnosis, but things aren't looking good. The last I heard is I'm not making any red blood cells, so there's something to do with the bone marrow. Okay. I'm supposed to have some tests done. Uh, not sure exactly when, but I sh- probably should be home now trying to get things done instead of doing what I'm doing. But I mean, I, you know, I got to uh, said I was going to come down and do this, and I got to do it. You know, when I say I'll do something, I do it, Rich. Jack's protest starts to gain traction. Each morning, he drives to nearby Signal Hill, chatting with tourists and passing around his petition and filling out pages. Inside the Confederation building, his protest is also gaining ground with politicians. First of all, I'd like to say that um, the PC official opposition, we are unanimous in uh, that uh, we believe that this legislation should be amended. We also I catch up with Helen Conway-Ottenheimer, the justice critic for the opposition PC party. She's been after the justice minister to change the law since February 2023. She wanted to see it done in the spring, but nothing happened. Especially if you have suffered physical or psychological harm, uh, you may need time to be able to, um, you know, effectively come forward after, you know, suffering trauma. So, you know, to have that artificial barrier, uh, when we see that that is not the case for sexual uh, assaults, and we do not see any barriers like that that exist in the criminal justice system, there are, is no statute limitation. So why, the question is why does that exist for victims of physical abuse uh, who have been subjected to that as children? 
Do you think there's a concern about how much this could cost the province, given our history of institutional abuse here? That may be a factor, uh, that there's a concern perhaps that it may, um, you know, precipitate an onslaught of of cases coming forward. But if that is the case, we need to see that as evidence. If that is the case, please bring it forward and show us. So we need to uh, understand, um, you know, what what is the problem? Like, we need to have this this addressed as soon as possible. Despite repeated requests, nobody from the provincial Liberal government will meet with Jack. I hear from Jack's daughter, Brittany, again in early October. She calls to tell me Jack has cancer. But he's delaying treatment. He wants to be in Newfoundland the following week for the opening of the legislature. He's planning on bringing his petition with him and wants it heard by those in power. He won't give up. A few days later, Jack and Glennis are back in St. John's. The first stop, Confederation Building, to present their petition to the leader of the NDP. He meets with a pair of legislative assistants from the party. Jack starts by explaining his story again. I spent about two years locked in isolation with no books, no TV, no... Then tells them he has cancer. He passes over a binder full of signatures, 900 in total, and asks them what they can do to help him. Sorry for the terrible news, and like, we'll, we'll do everything we can not to delay anything for you. We'll, Concerns today, and also may these uh, gray skies, uh, gray skies and clouds, be somewhat of a. The next day, the House of Assembly opens for the fall sitting. The Wayland family pulls up in the pouring rain. There's a housing protest happening at the same time, but there are just as many people here for Jack. Further notice of motions. Inside the House, NDP MHA Leela Evans rises from her seat to introduce Jack's petition. Thank you, Speaker. This is a petition urging the House of Assembly to ask government to amend the Limitations Act to clearly state that there is no limitation period for civil claims involving child abuse of any form. Child abusers should not be able to rest easy under the protection of a limitation period where their victims continue to struggle. This is a win for the Wayland family. Jack's petition has made it to the legislature with the full backing of both opposition parties. But unless the government decides to change the law, the petition won't change anything. Outside, Jack continues his protest, though it's not where he should be right now. I should be in Ontario doing my chemotherapy. But uh, I told the doctors I was going to put it off till I got back. Yeah. Till the end of the month, uh, hopefully it won't make a whole lot of difference. I hope not anyway. Right? Hope not. Once I got something in my mind, I got to do it, right? Yeah. And this has been on my mind for a long time, so I got to do it, right? Yeah. What are the limits here, Jack? Like, when will you stop? When they change the law. And until then, I won't stop, right?
Jack Whalen is back home in Ontario now. He's begun cancer treatments. His family tells me they want to see him make this fight his priority, but his thoughts are still in Newfoundland. One of the first things Jack ever told me is that the wheels of justice turn slowly. And he's right. Brittany finally has trial dates set to hear his case, but not until October of 2024, more than five years after she first filed suit against the government. Newfoundland and Labrador's Justice Minister John Hogan says he can't comment on Jack's case since it's before the courts. But he says his government is always reviewing legislation to ensure it meets modern standards. Brittany Whalen is not giving up. I think what happened to my dad has affected every area of my life. It's, it's become fighting for justice on his behalf, has become my life's work. But I eat, breathe, sleep this, this case. Someone's got to do it. So here's hoping it will all be worth it in the end. That documentary was produced by Ryan Cook with Allison Cook from CBC's Audio Doc Unit. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. It is time for this Normally sedate and dank studio to transform into an arena of victory or shattered dreams filled with triumph and despair. Yes, it is time once again to play That's Puzzling. Once a month, I take on one of my CBC colleagues and a super smart listener in a series of word challenges. Now, people not named Pia have been on a hot streak lately. People named Pia have been sucking. And it is my goal to put an end to that before this year is through. So, how fiendish will this month's puzzles be? Well, that's up to the guy who leads us through the fights, the frenzies. Oh, yes, the fun. Peter Brown. Hi, Peter. Hello, Pia. Does does the studio remain dank in that's puzzling, or is the dankness a constant? No, the dankness is a constant, and there's no there's not great lighting in here either. Oh, so the, I'm laying out all the conditions in case I lose. Right. Why I'm losing? CBC Radio. The dankness is constant. <laughs> yeah, we're about to find out, Pia, which Edmonton Oilers you are, because in the spring you were those mid eighty Oilers just rattling off impressive wins, and since September. 
you have been the current Edmonton Oilers who fans have not been enjoying. Mm. Been frustrated because we know the potential is there. So we're about to find out. No pressure. Are you the 80s Oilers or the right now I'm the Oilers. 80s Oilers. I love the Oilers in the 80s. All right. Well, it's time to win that 1990 Cup after Gretzky was <laughs> traded. Good luck as you lace them up, Pia. Uh, we're going to take it one puzzle at a time. Play 18 minutes of tough two-way physical quiz. Let's meet your <laughs> opponents for this month. First, with Pia in our Toronto studio, the host of the CBC Kids Show Studio K. It's Tony Kim. Hello, Tony. Hello, hello. I'm staring Pia down right now. I'm feeling the is. dank in my bones. <laughs> yeah. I'm preparing myself for, for failure as well. <laughs> <laughs> I like Studio K. That's na- not named after Kim. Like, oh, we it can't. should be. I know. Let's you make it just, happen. Yeah. <laughs> now, Tony, you do play games on Studio K, and you are you describe yourself as a nerd. Are you specifically this kind of nerd? Are you a word puzzle nerd? I wordled a little bit. I dabbled in the wordle world, but I'm more used to, like, shouting commands at my friends and berating them <laughs> while we're, you know, trying to destroy the enemy teams. That's the kind of gaming I'm used to. I will oh. just say, uh, just as before we started, Peter, I uh, introduced uh, Tony to Connections, and so that is the second person on this show in the last month or so that I've introduced to Connections, because you'll remember I introduced Barbara Streisand to Connections. Saying, wonder if she's playing. (laughs) Spoiler alert, we have a game that's a little bit like Connections we're going to introduce in the new year. Oh! But let's meet our final contestant, our youngest ever challenger from Colchester, Nova Scotia. At the age of 13 years old, it's Moss Martin. Hello, Moss. Hi. Moss, first of all, on behalf of everyone at CBC, thank you for lowering the average demographic by decades. (laughs) (laughs) How do you like your chances today, Moss? I'm hoping they're good, but I'm not sure. I'm trying to work out whether Moss is actually humble or whether that is just wise, false humility. We still don't even know if he's actually 13. Moss, do you have any sense of what a rotary phone is? Uh, Yeah, it's one of those old ones that... You spin the dial on. Steve, we spun like, it like a wheel. You spin it. Yeah, that sounds like a thirteen-year-old to me. Because he started with he started with one of those old ones, aka my high school. Yeah. Uh, welcome, everyone. Moss, we are delighted to have you with us today. Tony, welcome to you. Pia, let's find out what kind of oiler you are. It's time to play. That's puzzling. We start today, as always, with a definition challenge. I'm going to give you a word with three possible definitions. One of those definitions is real, two I've made up. So Pia, this is a switch. Your challenge is to spot the real definition. This is worth one point. Today's word is Zugma. (laughs) Z-E-U-G-M-A, Zugma. One of these is a real definition of the word Zugma. I'm gonna get a little narrative here, so listen closely. First, imagine a flamenco dance but slow and intense and melancholy, that is Zugma. Second option, Zugma, a literary device where a word has two meanings in the same sentence. And I'll give you an example. Moss went to the lake and caught three fish and a cold. So caught works two different ways on catching the fish and catching the cold. That word that does two different things in a sentence is Zugma. And finally, an appropriate winter scene, picture a giant fur-trimmed winter cloak. That is a Norwegian-style garment. That is a Zugma. So you've got the slow flamenco, you've got the literary device, you've got the Norwegian cloak. 
Pia, I heard you say, oof, so we're coming to you first. Okay. Which do you think? And let me point out before you answer, we've had a lot of close games. It might all come down to this. Yeah. Uh, here's where my brain is going, Peter. Zugama. Okay. Sounds like you devise these puzzles, and I feel like you're just like, Zumba sounds like Zumba, and so you went to flamenco. Like, I'm just feeling like there's a dance thing, so I think that's fake. The number two, the two meanings in a sentence, I mean, that was brain twisting for me, and you are a brain twister with all your wording. Um, so I feel like that would something come out of your big brain. So I'm going with the giant fur trimmed cloak, as you called it, because I also, when you said Zygma, giant fur-trimmed cloak. I thought, well, maybe it's one of those Scandinavian words like Hugga or something like Zygma. Mm. So I think the real one is number three, fur-trimmed cloak. I do like the way you said Hugga. I wish I could give you a point for that. Mm-hmm. Tony, what do you think? I'm thinking. I'm thinking option number one. I feel like it's wow. you know it's an artistic kind of thing. It's like a it's a letting out of passion in the middle of a dance. Can you, you go can you Zugma. Sh- oh. <laughs> Zugma. I wish you could see him. I yeah. wish. But exactly what you're imagining by hearing him is what he's doing right now. <laughs> my arms are spread out wide. My chest is bare. I'm letting out my Zugma. <laughs> <laughs> that will be the title of your autobiography, "Letting Out My Zugma." <laughs> uh, all right, Moss. We have one person thinks it's the cloak. One person thinks it's the flamenco. What is your thought here? Well, Zugma, it's just a feeling, but it reminds me of a chess term, Zugzwang. Oh, of course. And it's, it's, it's in, which is uh, when you have to make a bad move because there are no good moves left. Mm. But it, it's not, it, it feels like it should be the double meaning. Huh? Whoa. Whoa, okay. Wait, what was that word you said about chess? Because I feel like that's applicable to many things in life. When there are no good moves, you have to make a bad move. What is that word? Zugzwang. 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 So this is an interesting situation. This doesn't happen often, where each of our players has chosen a different definition. The correct definition of Zugma. A literary device Whoa. where a word has two meanings. Moss. Moss, you are in the lead. Well are you, done. Are you okay. feeling the, the heady excitement of the battle yet? Yes. That's he has what we come were here to play. <laughs> Moss is not messing around. All right. The score is Moss won, and that's the whole score. Pia has nothing. Tony has nothing. But we are about to play two rounds of two-point questions, so here we go. We move on now to our second round, a game we call Plus One. Players... I'm asking you for two words. The words will be identical, except the second word has one added letter. That's the plus one. So, for instance, if I asked you to take a word for be victorious and add a letter to make a word for identical sibling, again, be victorious and identical sibling by adding a letter, the correct answer would be win and twin. Win for be victorious, what Moss is doing at the moment, twin for identical sibling, Win plus T equals twin. This added letter could go at the beginning of the word or at the end or anywhere in between. These are worth two points. And for this round, this first round of this, all the puzzles are connected to a geographical feature. So, Tony, the good news is you're up first. Yay. Take a word that means relaxation, relaxation, and add a letter to make a word for the top of a hill. Relaxation. And there is a hint available. Relaxation and the top of a hill. Relaxation, calm, uh, 
relaxation. And the top of the hill was the second word? Yes. Top of the hill. Uh, top of the, what do you call a top of the hill? Crest? <laughs> crest, tip, uh, calm. Calm to crest. Calm, calm, relaxation. I'm on a vacation, relaxation. Chill, chill, top of the hill. Tony, you have said one correct thing already. Ooh, but you're not going to tell me which one was no. correct. You've said oh. a lot of words. So I did I say know. a lot of words. Oh, I dug myself a grave here. Okay, wait. Okay, Ch- maybe chill. Top of the hill. Top of the hill. Chill. No. Mm-mm. <laughs> so, are you ready for your hint? Wait. Rest and crest. Yes, sir. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I, I knew that one. Oh, of course okay. you did. All right, that's okay. Of course you did. <laughs> so did I. So everyone else stayed nice and silent when Tony said crest. They're going. Oop. <laughs> well played, Tony. Thank you. You got two points. All right, Moss. Who knew that one? You're up next. You're going to take a word that means a passageway between buildings. Passageway between buildings. Add a letter to get a low area between hills. Valley and Valley. Oh, I thought I was so smart. I was literally just writing low. (laughs) And he's got it. And and, uh, Moss, did you take that two second break to do some light reading in between answering? (laughs) Or were you just being nice to everybody? Moss, you've got three points. The maximum possible so far. Nice. Pia, time Uh, to get on the board. uh... (laughs) Take a word that means. Wait, I just need a moment. Okay. I'm grumpy. I gotta get out of my gr- I'm, I'm angry at my comp- at my opponents. I gotta stop being angry at them because they're so good at this. Okay. All right, Pia. Psyched up. Calm down. Here we go. Take a word that means cross a river where it's shallow. Cross a river where it's shallow, and add a letter to get a body of water that starts at the sea and goes far inland. And I have. I have some oh hints my God, here. Just hold on. <laughs> Cross a river where it's shallow, a word for that. Uh-huh. You're going to add a letter. You sound more defeated than you should be at this point. I, I'm not good with water. <laughs> Body <laughs> of water. <laughs> that is not good for your hydration. Inlet. I'm like, okay. A body of water that starts at the sea and reaches far inland. Sea so or ocean? Uh, is either. Oh, see how I sounded so smart there? Mm. Yeah, that was okay, good. Okay, and goes inland. Um, yeah. A stream? Cross uh, a river where it's shallow, mm-hmm. body of There's water. There's a word for that, and I just can't think of it. And I right. know that word, but okay. I can't think of it. You should see the control room. They are so, <laughs> everyone's smug today. Andrea, oh. our producer, is just like kind of giving me wide eyes. And Aranda, our technician, is just nodding. Like, I got this. I got this. Well, they have the mild advantage of having seen the answers. <laughs> That's fair. Ah. That's fair. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. They're like, Moss, I know this. Yeah. Um, All you have to do is read page four. Come <laughs> okay. on. I'm buying time. The okay. only salty water right now is a tear coming out of your eyes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, have, uh, P- I have a water glass that's going to come across the table into your face in a minute, Tony Kim. Pia. Um, yeah, I'm by the them. letter that you add is J. J? Yeah. Oh, to the body of water of uh, inland. A jut, a jute, a, oh God, ute. I don't know what I'm saying. A J? You add a J. You cross a river, you add a J, and you get a body of water that starts at the sea and goes far inland. A jet? No. Oh, God. It's in the middle of the word. I'll give you even oh, more. Oh, even worse. A jar. <laughs> a jar. <laughs> um, I don't know. You're about to go, oh, Tony, yeah, okay. do you know what it is? No, I was hoping Pia would just vamp a little bit more so I would get more time. <laughs> um, uh, Crossing the river where 
it's shallow yeah. to a body of water stretching inland inland from the sea or ocean from the sea and, or ocean and you add a j to get and to i get add it. a j in the middle yeah in, in, it's, this is injustice 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 is what i'm feeling yes. right now okay um, yeah no i don't have anything right now let's see if we have a stumper or whether moss has this ford and fjord there it is Oh! Cross a river where it's shallow is Ford. Take a body of water that starts at the sea and reaches far inland is Fjord. Fjord! That's smart. I have another F word. It's coming to mind. Moss, let's have a discussion here. Just you and me one-on-one. Do I have to like you because you're a young human being, or can I be angry with you in this moment? You can be angry at me. And I can't ha- stop you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh what a great answer. Oh, he even has the oh. Zen calm of a master. <laughs> the current score, the calm and humble Zen master Moss has five. Tony has two. Pia, it's not impossible, but Pia is not yet on the board. At the moment, it's a bit of a Connor McDavid performance. <laughs> now we turn to our final round. We're going to stick with plus one. These are worth two points. And hints are available. We're going to start with Pia. Take a vehicle pulled by horses. Vehicle, vehicle pull, pulled, by, pulled horses. by horses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And add a letter Tesla. to get. Add a letter to get nice. <laughs> That's to, <laughs> to get trickery or deception. So cart, horse and cart. What else do horses? Call? That kind of word. Yeah. Cart. That that kind of word, not that yep. word. Nope. 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 Okay. What else do they pull? Horses pull vehicle. Trickery or deception. Uh, cart. What else do horses pull? What kind of vehicle? A bike? A car? A truck? Um, Think about train? a song that you're going to hear on the twenty right, starting soon, and that runs through the Here month comes of December. Slay! 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 Ooh. Slay. And then add a letter to get trickery. Slight, slight, there slight. it is. Nice. Woo. Well here done. Here comes Santa Claus. Here comes Santa Claus. <laughs> Except that's, that's, that's the... That, I'll oh, sing I was, all. Th- I was thinking Jingle Bells, one horse open sleigh. Beautiful. All right, Tony, here's the situation. If you get this one right, there is a chance that you could win. Love it. If you don't get this right, then Moss will, will have won. Love that less. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so your challenge is to take a word for the main branch of a tree, main branch of a tree, and add one letter to get a word for acquired. Acquired. Main branch of a tree. And there is a hint available, don't forget. What is a main branch? I didn't know there was a... Oh, wait, wait. Trunk? Trunk? Is that a a branch? No, branches come out of trunks. Acquired. 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 To take, to receive... Take. You should see his red receive, pen going. Oh, he's going. <laughs> acquired. Acquired. Take. Receive. Um, accept. Um, accept. I, I'm going to give you the hint. Yes. That second word. That means word, you're not going on the right path. This is the second what it word. Means? Yes. Let me just nudge the car back into the road. Um, the second word can also mean paid for. Acquired or paid for. When you paid for something, what did you do? I, I, paid, I paid for it. I paid for it. There was a transaction. Yep. I gave money. I, I mean, no, acquired. Yep, keep saying words for, for that. Okay. Uh, I paid money, acquired, transaction, paid for, bartered, traded, trade, uh, oh, trade. Oh, no. Uh, I'll give you another moment. 
Paid for, paid for it, acquired. I acquire. Give it to me. Give it to me. Receive. Uh, you should again. I wish we had a camera. I wish we were on television. <laughs> he is reaching out give with his hand. Like, give it to me. Give acquired. it to me. Acquired. Wait, no. Wait, tree. Okay, I'm missing the tree here. What? What am I missing with this tree? The main branch. The main branch. Like the main, the main branch. branch. Main big They're branch. Just trunk and then okay. arms. Okay. Arms. All right, I'm going to have to call this. I'm, Tony, I'm giving you three more seconds. Although, more seconds. I could so listen to animated. this all day. No, he is so, I just, again, Tony Kim is the most animated human I've ever, like, Wait, hold up. Right now, arms, arms of a tree. I use my arms He's to pay for something. Acquiring arm, farm. You're going to pull something in your shoulders. There's so arm movements going on Okay, here. I'm going to say, no. Tony. Oh, that was the most entertaining thing ever. That was lovely and joyful and unsuccessful. Um, if Moss misses this and Pia steals it, Pia could still, in theory, win. But Moss, do you know what this is? Bow and Bolt. That is correct. W- what? Bow. Bow. B-O-U-G-H. Rock a bye, baby, on the treetop. You know, when, when the, the bow breaks, the ba- the cradle will. Fall. I have never heard that. You've when never, the bow breaks? Wait, you've never heard? I this have never lullaby? heard that in that. No, I've heard this lullaby. I've never heard that specific part of that lullaby. What, I what guess. did you think it when was? When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. Oh, when the, the oh when no, I did. I guess it's just not an important part of the rhyme for me. <laughs> so that's infuriating. Here, here is where we are. Pia has two, Tony has two, Moss has seven. Wow. Uh, Moss has one. I don't know whether anyone has ever scored nine points. Let's just see if he can do so it. So let's see if he gets the record. And, I, and I'm not sure whether he will. Moss, this is, just, you're, this is like in the high jump in the Olympics where you've already won, but now you're going for the record. Moss, take a word that means pieces of the Earth's crust. It's plural. Pieces of the Earth's crust. And add one letter to get exercise that you do on a mat. Plates and pilates. Put uh, the accent on the second syllable. And Peter, don't it. help him. He doesn't Plates. need help. You know what? Here's what occurs to me. At Moss's age, he may have read this word and not heard it said. That's, That's what so I think bad. happened. Exactly. Uh, he doesn't need any help, Brown. <laughs> there is no rule about correct pronunciation, Pia. I'm oh sorry. Oh, my God. So you're you wanted fired. me to you, know what? you wanted me to say no moss you're wrong with pilates uh, does anyone else have it and you wanted to say pilates as if it was your accomplishment <laughs> that's what you wanted me to do yeah okay. I support you Pia. I support you in this yes this is wrong and not only do I want you to do that it's my show and you will do that <laughs> all right so moss you scored nine points I think that's a record congratulations wow well done. You killed it, man. That was awesome. You're amazing, Moss. Thanks for playing, Moss. No problem. What fun this was. Tony, this was great. Thank you so much. I enjoyed the dancing, even though I didn't see it. Thank you. That was so much fun. Oh, my God. Uh, Invite Tony to every party ever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you, players. Uh, thank you, players. And, hey. home. and for the final time in 2023, that is That's Puzzling. <laughs> Thank you, Peter, Tony, and especially to you, Moss. A brand new, just-off-the-shelf official Sunday Magazine notebook is on its way to you in Colchester, Nova Scotia. Now, we will be back in January with an all-new round of That's Puzzling. We've already started our listener contest for the chance to play on air with us next month. So if you want to give it a shot, we're asking you to invent a word that describes 
a person who shows up at the gym in early January and instantly realizes it is not for them. You can email your made-up word to sunday at cbc.ca, put that's puzzling in the subject line, and please include your phone number. You have until next Sunday, which is December 10th, to submit your made-up world. So again, a person who shows up at the gym in early January and instantly realizes it's not for them. That's the kind of made-up word we're looking for. The winner will play in January's game and win the ultimate prize, which is a Sunday Magazine coffee mug or a Sunday Magazine notebook. You might have a choice in these matters. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and you're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. Maria Ressa is a force to be reckoned with. The title of her memoir, How to Stand Up to a Dictator, might tip you off to that. Maria was born in the Philippines, but moved to the United States with her family in the 1970s to escape martial law. As an adult, she returned to Southeast Asia, this time as a journalist, and by 2012, she was back in the Philippines, where she started her own online news site called Rappler. Rappler's unrelenting reporting on the regime of former President Rodrigo Duterte uncovered corruption and documented the spread of government disinformation. For that, Maria Ressa earned global acclaim as well as the 2021 Nobel Peace Prize. But in the Philippines, it made her the subject of vicious online harassment and politically motivated lawsuits and charges. Through it all, Maria has not backed down. Instead, She's doubled down, warning the world about the dangers of authoritarianism and the threat disinformation poses to democracies. She's only allowed to travel if the Philippine Supreme Court permits her to leave that country, which it did back in the spring when Maria Ressa came here to Canada. Here's my conversation from April with journalist Maria Ressa. Thanks for having me, and it's good to be back in the building. Yeah, it's nice to see you. I was saying before we started, we measured our height. I knew you'd be small but mighty. <laughs> One inch taller. One inch you. taller. Okay, you got me. <laughs> Thank there you. you go. Uh, let's get down to business and serious business at that. You and Rappler recently acquitted of tax evasion. If you had been convicted, you could have gone to prison in the Philippines for, for more than 30 years. 34. So, 34. So yeah. when that acquittal came out, how did that victory feel? How does it feel for you? I mean, you have to know, like, I was always getting ready for the worst, right? So when I, I woke up that morning and I had to be okay going to the courtroom thinking that I could go to jail for 34 years. And when they read it out, it took me a few seconds. Actually, our my executive editor and our CFO was in the audience and our CFO screamed because we both testified in this. And it was like a giant weight had been lifted off our shoulders. And that decision was critical. And it actually showed the independence of the judiciary. It's That decision showed you that, you know, there was no reason for, for dragging us through this. The case shouldn't have gone to court that... And yet it took four years and two months of my life and Rappler's resources. You said, you know, I got up that morning and I had to prepare that essentially this might be my last day of freedom. How does one even prepare? How do you even go about that? Like on a personal level? You like put your emotions, push it under, take a deep breath and and be ready for anything. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, anything is possible. I think that's the one thing, you know, if you're listening, you have to realize that if you don't have integrity of facts, 
rule of law is an illusion. And all of this can change like that. So I guess the thing about you, Maria, is as I've watched you these past number of years, and I've seen you speak, and I get that when you stand up and speak, there's a certain you know performance or persona about it, but you always seem incredibly steadfast, courageous, and I would say unafraid. So I'm wondering, what, what is that about you as a person? I think first, you know, I, in the book, I talked about how broadcast reporting live actually is great training for crisis. You know, yep. so, so, you know, that was the first is I know that you have to just stay calm. You can't be emotional. Emotion is luxury. When you're in these situations, you can process it later, but you need clarity of thought. But the other part that carried us through it is this belief I've always had since I was a kid, which is whatever it is you're most afraid of, you have to embrace it. You have to embrace your fear Hmm. and you rob it of its sting so that that doesn't stop you from doing anything, doing what you would normally do. That's what we've tried to do in the last six years. You've always been like this since you were a kid. This has sort of been like your approach to to life, to the world. I think part of it is I realized early on that we are our own worst enemies. (laughs) You know, (laughs) an immigrant kid. I think you realize this, right? Like, I always felt like I needed to prove I I deserved a seat at the table. Earned a seat. Not deserved it. Earned it. I I always Well, I like to make the distinction because I think it's an important one to make. It's true. Uh, This is also another idea I loved the present moment of the past. It's from a T.S. Eliot quote I read when I was much younger. He wrote that the latest novel you read is affected by the fact that you read Shakespeare, but your appreciation of Shakespeare is changed by the Mm. latest novel you read. I think that concept is about how you develop yourself. And then I mean, let's talk history now, right? In every country around the world. Let's um, let us do that. Let us talk about modern history in the yeah. Philippines. Rodrigo Duterte no longer president. It is now uh, Fernando Marcos Jr., son of the former dictator who was in power for more than twenty years. So you remember the time under Marcos Senior in the seventies and eighties, and then now we have Vice President Sarah. Duterte, so the daughter of Rodrigo Duterte. How do you see and interpret the sort of next generation who now hold power in the Philippines? So first, let's start with human behavior, right? Like starting soon after the fall of Suharto, when that was followed by a new president every year. Like imagine for Indonesians, they had the same president for almost 32 years. And what what we saw shortly after, like a few years, within five years after, was this kind of nostalgia for the past. Mm. It is a stability of a dictatorship, right, essentially. And in many ways, we in a democracy also don't necessarily want to make every choice that a democracy demands. You kind of want to focus on your family, you want to do well, but you want someone else to make the call. So we're seeing this. India, Modi, right? In 2004, he's a human rights violator. In 2014, he's the prime minister, right? So this nostalgia has been there. That's a fundamental thing hmm. of human you see, nature. You I saw think. it in the, when the Soviet Union fell in, so, in former well, Eastern Europe. Look, exactly. You see this in every country around the world. So let's just say that's basic, right? But then what happened on top of that is technology. This technology that, that supposedly connects us, the social media companies that deliver the news to you today, 
actually do far more than just deliver the news. It decides what news you get, what content, let's not even call it news, what content you get based on one thing alone. It's not about making sure you have the right information, which is what news organizations do, right? We're responsible for the public sphere. These tech companies, their only goal is profit. And nothing stops them from doing that. So in order to make the most revenues, and they want to keep making the most revenues, to keep you scrolling, what has happened is that they have essentially incited fear, anger, hate. In the Nobel lecture, I called it toxic sludge, the worst of human nature. And the design of these platforms have literally hacked our biology, hmm. insidiously manipulating the worst of our emotions to change the way we think, ultimately the way we act, ultimately the way we vote. So I'm going to say, and I think individuals feel this way, that I think, yeah, Maria Ressa, that happens to people that are not informed or not caring or vulnerable or, you know, less bright than I am. Doesn't happen to me. I'm not being manipulated. Ha. Ha. <laughs> <laughs> you know, your rational mind. There are two systems of thinking. Daniel Kahneman wrote this, right? Thinking fast, thinking slow. Thinking slow is journalism, is governance. It's sitting down to try to solve a problem. Thinking fast is instinctive. Even before social media, at least 80 to 85% of the way people vote, and I go back to elections, right? Because the way 80 to 85% is not based on what we think, it is how we feel. Hmm. This is why politicians, right? Why TV was a little bit of a game changer. But I think the other part is don't underestimate how your instincts kick in, why anger keeps you scrolling, how, I, how you're mildly addicted to this platform because you keep scrolling. How long have you spent on TikTok, right? We now live in an attention economy. And the goal is outrage, outrage, attention economy. And we have been commodified. Your rational mind cannot stand up to this. That's important to note, that my no rational how, mind cannot yeah, stand up, and fact, neither can yours or anyone else's. No one. It's biology. You know, I mean, again, because I'm a half full person all the time, glass empty, half full. I'm a half full person. The best part of this whole horrific journey that we've been on is that it actually proved that humanity, that people in different countries and different cultures around the world have far more in common. Hmm then we have differences. So let's apply this to the Philippines, where I said the next generation uh, is in power of both Duterte's daughter and then Marcos's son. Is this how this happened through social media, through that manipulation? How did the collective memory of Filipinos get, quote unquote, erased? Milan Kundera said it in The Unbearable Lightness of Being, the struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. Marcos was elected largely because of two reasons. The first were, were information operations that began in 2014. Not a coincidence, that's when Russian disinformation began targeting uh, U.S. elections, right? 2014. And Pivotal year in all of this. Very pivotal. That's also when you look at what has happened to news groups around the world. That's when we lost our gatekeeping powers, right? And and the information operations, the meta narrative seeded about Marcos in YouTube, in Facebook was, you know, no longer kleptocrat. He didn't steal $10 billion. He was the best leader 
the Philippines has ever had. And that was pounded information operations, right? Russian military doctrine uses information warfare. That is part of the Russian military doctrine. And think about it like this. Yuri Andropov, a former KGB chair, said that disinformatia is like cocaine. You take it once or twice, you're okay. But if you take it all the time, you become a changed person. Hmm. So slowly, this is death by a thousand cuts of history. And then you take the past and then you introduce a meta narrative that keeps getting pounded. Right? A lie told a million times becomes a fact. In addition to that are the real world consequences of a dictator in power for almost 21 years, right? Those people didn't just disappear in the same way that. Nazi Germany didn't just disappear, right? For every country around the world that has had a past, they're still there. Mm -hmm. And the dynasties that helped Ferdinand Marcos, the father, stay in power for almost 21 years, they're still there. So let's talk about Rappler's entry into this, because we talk about um, sort of the 2014 thereabouts sort of being this kind of pivotal time. So there is some, I don't know if I'd call it irony, but uh, the story of Rappler really dovetails with the rise of yes. social media. It, you started as a Facebook page, we right? Did. You have said that you yeah. bought into all the possibilities of what Facebook I could drank offer. the Kool-Aid. Fair enough. Yeah. We all did at that time. So I guess it's with hindsight, of course. But at that time, what did you see the promise of Rappler being? I saw the promise of social media is exactly what it was in the Arab Spring in 2011. It allowed a group to take power, right? What I was looking at, technology helping jumpstart development in the Philippines. But the Arab Spring turned into the Arab winter by 2014, mm -hmm. right? Because power then saw, oh, my God, we can do that better. We have more power. We have more money. And the tech companies, their interests dovetailed with authoritarian leaders, and they exploited and the tech companies allowed the exploitation of what was once an advertising marketing tool for power. Whoever is the highest bidder, right? That's the problem that we have. And I think that until today, impunity continues on these social media platforms, the kind of insidious manipulation of our emotions that has turned these technology platforms into behavior modification systems. So whether it be in the Philippines, whether it be the January 6th riots in the United States, we have collectively been woken up, you might take umbrage with that in a moment, about how online disinformation works. We have been woken up to, as the CEO of TikTok testifies in the United States about the dangers of these platforms existing to the essence and the building blocks and the fundamentals of our democracy. Yeah. And yet, we haven't quite figured out what the hell we're going to do about it. We're trying. Yeah. So we're sort of in this moment of like, we know we got a problem. Yes. Yes. Now what? Yeah. In the long term, it is education. Right? In the medium term, it has to be legislation. In the short term, it is just us. I mean, when you talk legislation, think about it like this. There are building codes. We know this building is not going to fall down around us. I was at a conference where the Cambridge Analytica whistleblower actually said, even the toaster has more regulations <laughs> dictating how it gets to your home than this 
than social media. And yet what social media has done, they even, they've even quantified this, right? They say they A-B test in real time on real people. Mm-hmm. What's A-B testing? It's like a drug company going to the town square and taking the right side of the town square and say, hey, you people, let's test drug A. And then on the other side, you people, you get drug B. Oh, drug A killed you. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, it's not just the tech companies themselves that are doing A-B testing. Media companies do A-B testing as well. Again, these are tools that were created by technology. And, you know, what's been the impact of this? It's commodified news. That has been to the detriment of journalism. In order to get the widest distribution of news, right, um, well, first, in 2018, and we didn't know this till 2018, we felt it, MIT came out with a study that said lies spread at least six times faster. And if you lace it with anger, fear, hate, this is our data, it spreads even faster, right? And so does gossip, right? In the real world, right? Well, call it lies. I mean, yes, because you don't know whether gossip is real or not. But if it's fueled with anger, if you can tell something that so-and-so is really angry or you spread a lie, like this stuff, this is human, human behavior works this way. It is. But that's why journalists were gatekeepers, right? That's why the public sphere was protected. That's why we were accountable for that. Take away those guardrails and now give it to tech where the only thing they want is money. We were, I mean, look, every news organization strikes this balance between the news head and the company head, right? I mean, I've made decisions that have been bad for profits because it is in the public interest. Hmm. Have you seen the companies, the tech companies do any of this? What are the values of these tech companies? Is it going to be profit at all costs? But but if they said to you, uh, the Zuckerbergs, the Musks, uh, there are others as well. I don't need to be involved in that. I run a business, man. Like, I just, I want to make as much bank as I can. They need to be regulated. So governments are are really to be held accountable here as well. You're absolutely correct. Two groups abdicated responsibility for protecting us. The first are the tech companies that took over the gatekeeping powers into our public information ecosystem. The second are democratic governments who abdicated responsibility for protecting us. Now, look, I mean, you saw the, the, the Senate hearings very, very early on where Mark Zuckerberg testified and Orrin Hatch, Senator or- then Senator Orrin Hatch, asked him what the business model of Facebook was. This is the gap between old power which moves at a far slower pace and is accountable to the people, and new power, which is used to testing everything, rolling everything out. I mean, you know, move fast, break things. Yeah, Hmm. they broke democracy. They broke our shared reality. We've had violence on Capitol Hill the first time ever. We've had violence in Brazil. I mean, I talk a lot about Facebook, but let's talk about the clustering algorithm, the recommendation engine of YouTube, which essentially took Bolsonaro from the fringe far right. And what the clustering algorithms did is they combined his supporters with the conspiracy theorists and provided the support base that brought him to the presidency and provided the support base that brought January 8th this year to violence. So for Canadians, sometimes we can be a smug lot, I'm going to argue, sort of collectively. We think this Even can happen. Even though you're very nice. We're very nice. <laughs> and it, it, I don't think that's a condemnation of our sort of collective culture. No, but, I th- no. but I do think we are 
arguably smug in this way that we say, yeah, it can happen in Brazil, it can happen in the Philippines, it can happen in Indonesia, it can happen in X, X, Y, Y, all these countries. It can happen not so far from us in the United States. But we have the infrastructure, we have a culture that is different, we will see it, we will know it, we won't have it. Death by a thousand cuts. Look, so much has changed from 2017 to today. Look at your own politics. As more and more Canadians went to social media, and your social media penetration rate is now, what, like around 87%. Uh, how many people get their news from social media? People how, say, I've gotten off Facebook, I've gotten off Twitter. You know, no longer You're just influenced. on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can we just say this, right? That Facebook is a blunt mallet. TikTok is a surgical probe. I mean, that's oh. how they micro-target us, right? Our weakest moment to a message sold to the highest bidder. It's like, you're my therapist. I told you my deepest, darkest secret. And then you went out and said, who wants Maria's <laughs> deepest, darkest secret? And sold it. This is what's happening to us. And it affects you whether you're on social media or not. I mean, you walk outside and there's a camera that's there that captures your photo, right? Like... You know, even if you're not on social media, the world around you, your context is impacted by this corruption of the information ecosystem. You can try to avoid it, but the reality is that your world today is polluted by lies. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Maria Ressa, journalist, Nobel Prize winning journalist who has been fighting um, for democracy for a long time now. Maria, uh, I'm speaking with you at a time when Canadians, I think you know this because you come to our country frequently and I, and I know you follow the news here. We're grappling with this news with allegations reported by other media outlets that suggest our past two federal elections have been subject to foreign interference from China. You've heard, I think, our Prime Minister say it didn't have an impact on the overall election result. Some of what is being alleged involves online disinformation. Now, it's really important that we reiterate this every time we talk about it. we don't have a full picture of what happened or how serious it may be. But what is your advice for how Canadians should think about the information we're getting right now regarding our democratic process? You have to demand a real-time data stream from the technology platforms, because that is the only way you can hold both the platforms and the insidious manipulators of the information ecosystem accountable, right? We know in the Philippines, for example, we know that both we've seen Russian disinformation, we've seen Chinese disinformation. We started tracking this. Where did they come in? As early as 2018 to 2019, we actually saw the Duterte-Marcos clusters, disinformation networks, bringing in Chinese propaganda, right? You can track this if you have a real-time data flow. So that's the first step. This is purely trackable. The tech companies have it. Why does the public not have access to this data? That's the first. The second is oftentimes what I see in almost every country around the world, what people see as political can be shown as very simple battle for facts if you have the data. This is, you know, our work really focuses on establishing the facts because that's the only way you can stop cascading failures. But what, we have, what I've seen is that we deal with the failure but not the root cause. So, for example, one of the things we've talked about forever, and, and it's been years that it stays that the, how do we solve this problem, right? It stays at content moderation. 
please do not stay at content moderation. Like, let me tell you what that means. Think about a polluted river. That is our information ecosystem. I already told you AI takes our data. Think about that as the factory of lies upstream. Content moderation is like taking a glass of water from that polluted river, dropping that thing that will clean up the water, but then you toss it back into mm. the river. It's like a whack-a-mole game, right? Beyond that. Move further up, right? When you spread lies, who wins? And you can see why illiberal leaders are being elected democratically. Because if you have a conscience and you don't want to lie and you don't want to incite hate, how are you going to get elected, right? The good guys are saying we should be doing that. Do not do that. Do not become a monster to fight a monster. So what do you need to do? Go all the way up to that factory of lies and shut it down because it will take a while to clean up this river and then you have to rehabilitate it. The damage that has been done globally to all of us has set us back many years. I hope not too too much so that we can't recover, but I have said when we look at the number of elections globally. I was going to bring this up. You're 2024. Yeah. So not to, sorry to interrupt, um, you say that if something doesn't drastically change, that 2024 could be the year we, quote, fall off a cliff. What is the potential? I mean, of us falling off this cliff. And wait, you, not we, you mean democracy. You mean the world's stability. This is like a massive existential crisis. And you say, look, could be there. Which is why I'm speaking to you, you know, because you have a role. Every person needs to stop being a user and become a citizen. We have to reinvent what civic engagement is in the age of exponential lies. But yes, the doomsday clock is ticking. And it is, we are either going to fall off the cliff, which means, you know, in 2024, I mean, Canada will have elections and sometime during this time period, 2024 or 2025, right? Your information ecosystem is already tainted, right? What we are seeing globally is the rise of the far right. And what we're seeing is something that I hope doesn't get to Canada, which is, White supremacy, it is in Viktor Orban calls it white replacement theory, right? And it is in state ideology. White replacement theory is another form of Nazism. We've been through this before. So what do we do, right? The first is, please, legislation. In the EU, it's the closest that comes to regulating the algorithms. This is not a free speech issue. This is a distribution issue. It's the fact that lies are spreading faster. That's what's turned our value system upside down. That's what's splintered apart our shared reality. So we're debating whether things are facts. <laughs> yes, and yes. they shouldn't be, right? So what do we do, right? Like This please... is the penultimate question. Again, 2024, elections, as you say, in many places. The key ones in 2024 will be India, the world's largest democracy where the BJP has its own machinery online, where Prime Minister Modi um, has moved. I mean, this is similar. Modi and Marcos were both could not enter the United States. And when they were democratically elected, all that went away. They could mm. travel. Um, India, Indonesia, the world's largest Muslim population. And your neighbor to the south will have its elections, right? So I think that's a tipping point. But between now and then, there will be 90 elections. 90. 90. Think about it. If you don't have integrity of facts, how will you have integrity of elections? So please do not, if you're listening, please jump in. Take your cell phone. You know, um, 
this is a person to take person. my cell phone and what? You have to look at the context, the present moment of the past, and realize that we could lose our rights. We faced this in the Philippines, we faced it in Rappler, and we decided to hold the line. So Canadians, you know, what are you going to do? In the Nobel lecture, I talked about a person-to-person battle for integrity, a person-to-person battle for facts, values, integrity. You must win that. And we need to move from the virtual world to the real world until the regulations kick in, the ones that will help hold not just these companies accountable, but will protect us. You know, listening to you always emboldens me, depresses me. And I, I, I honestly, that balance when I listen to you, I don't. it, it changes often for me. And I don't mean that as a criticism. No. I mean that as a I reality understand. check. So the battle, these issues, um, the battle for democracy, trying to fix what's wrong with the internet, freedom, press freedom. These are not only huge, they're so complex. So what fuels this steadfast woman, this fighter? What keeps you going? Because something needs to get you out of bed every day, just like something needs to get me out of bed every day. Look, I understand the depression part, because when you look at the problem, it is horrific. You know, Joseph Conrad, it's the heart of darkness. It really is. That's where we are. There is no vision for the internet for the 21st century that is democratic. There is none. The incentive structure is horrific. It rewards the worst of humanity. Okay? Now, having said that, you have to accept that we are standing on the rubble of the world that was. This is truly creative destruction at work. You know, so are you trying to lift me here or depress me? No, no, no. (laughs) Truly, think about it like this, right? Like, you know, when the world was never great, you know, we were fighting for what? Equal rights, a more sustainable world, right? Something that's more compassionate, more empathetic. And frankly, even the way we told stories as journalists, right? It's okay to challenge all of this because now is the time when we can literally create it. I mean, what's so interesting to me now is that governments and citizens have the ability to recreate better, go upstream, fix the problem of lies that has contaminated, that is polluting our information ecosystem. And when you do that, the cascading failures, they right themselves. The world is worth fighting for, right? Tech companies, you have the power to change it immediately. And then finally, governments, don't abdicate your power. This is a time of creative destruction. Do not be afraid to actually create better. I often say to people at the end of the interview who are activists and champions and fighters, keep up the good fight. I won't say that to you because there's no pulling you back from your fight. I know that about you. Continue on. Thank you for joining me. Uh, It's always a pleasure to hear you. And it's uh, really great to be able to sit across the table from you and, and listen to you. Thank you, Maria. Thank you for having me. Maria Ressa is a journalist and Nobel Peace Prize winner. And since she was in our studio back in April and we had that conversation, she and Rappler have been acquitted of the fifth and final tax evasion charge they were facing in the Philippines. They face two remaining court cases.
And with that, we've come to the end of another round of the Sunday Magazine podcast. Our producers are Sarah Joyce Battersby, Levi Garber, Brianna Goss, Andrea Huang, and Aronde Williams. We had additional help from studio director Susan McReynolds. Our senior producer this week is Pete Mitten. Our executive producers are Brian Colton and Donna Dingwall. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you for lending us your ear here on the Sunday Magazine podcast. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.